The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're going to be in Revelation 5 as we continue to go through the book of Revelation, a section at a time. But before I actually get to chapter 5, by way of introduction, I want to read Romans chapter 8, if you have your Bible, verses 18 through 25 as an introduction to Revelation chapter 5. So if you have your Bible open to Romans 8, you can follow along with me. Here's the Apostle Paul talking about this great salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished and the many facets to salvation, and there are many, and even the need for salvation. Some people who don't know God or Christ, when you evangelize to them, they'll say they don't need to be saved because they're not lost. Well, that's not true. They just don't realize it if that's their attitude, but... Here's one of the reasons this world needs to be saved because this world is cursed. And that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 8, 18 through 25. So the curse applies to individuals. So Jesus Christ needs to save people individually, but it goes beyond that. His saving work also has universal implications and even cosmic implications. This world that is cursed needs to be saved. This universe that is literally falling apart and dying out needs to be redeemed and saved by a Savior that is bigger than this universe, and that's what Paul's talking about. Let's go ahead and look, Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, Paul knew that life was hard and that there was suffering in life. I don't know, maybe some of you had some hard times this week. That's what he's talking about. Paul was a realist. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us who are Christians in the future. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation is under duress, is what Paul's saying. Verse 20, for the creation, everything in creation was subjected to futility. That happened at the curse in Genesis chapter 3. As a consequence of sin, God suggested, uh, subjected everything, not just Adam and Eve, the angelic world, the physical world, the universe to a curse. For the crea- so for 6,000 years plus, creation has been subjected to this curse. It's, not an, unfr- it's a, an unfriendly world that we live in. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of Him, God, who subjected it, yet He subjected it to a curse in hope. It would be relieved in the future. That's what hope is. Verse 21, in order that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. That's what's happening to the world right now. It is under slavery to corruption, the world in which we live. Things are not going to get better on their own. There is no utopia just around the corner, humanly speaking. It's under slavery to corruption. But someday, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, we as believers know, that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. That's a realistic view of life. A lot of groaning, a lot of suffering, a lot of hardship and pain, isn't it? But that's not the end of the story. There's good news at the end of the story for the believer. Verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves as believers having the first fruits of the Spirit. If you've been a Christian or you became a Christian, God put the Holy Spirit to live inside of you as a first fruits, as a real promise that someday greater glories are yet to follow. The first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves as Christians as we live this life that is hard, waiting eagerly, our expectation and hope. We are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. The word adoption there doesn't refer to salvation. It refers to something else. What is that? The redemption of our body. We are 
eagerly awaiting the resurrection and redemption of our physical body in glory is what Paul's talking about. But that is yet future. Hasn't happened yet in this life. Verse 24, for in hope we have been saved. So God saved our soul, but he hasn't yet saved our body or this world in which we live. That's yet future. For in hope we have been saved. Anticipation. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So God has given us a great promise. Redemption is coming. Full, total redemption, including not just our soul, but our body, this world, the universe. Everything is going to be brought into total subjection to the glory of Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. And Paul says, clearly, it's not now, it is yet future. And so we continue to live life with great anticipation, faith in the promises of God, faith believing, yet we're not allowed to see. We walk by faith and not by sight is his whole point here. But also his point here is that currently, right now, while we are in these sinful fallen bodies in a sinful, cursed earth, life is hard. But if you're a believer, your soul has been saved and you have the great hope and promise of the future where all things will be made right in the end. And not just for a while, but for eternity. That is the hope of the believer, the hope of the Christian. And that promise is fulfilled in Revelation chapter 5 where God is going to redeem not just our bodies in addition to our souls, but also the entire world, universe, everything where we will live with God forever in glory. And the beginning of that is starts to be unfolded in Revelation chapter 5. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, I'm actually going to cover all 14 verses in chapter 5 today. Uh, but to bring you up to speed here, we are now in the third part of the book of Revelation. We saw that in chapter 1, God gave us a divine outline of a threefold outline for Revelation. Chapter 1 was the first part, things that uh, John the Apostle saw, and that was the glory of Jesus Christ. And then he said he was going to reveal the things which currently are, and that was chapters 2 and 3, and that was the state of the churches in John's day. It also carries over to the church age in its entirety because every single one of those churches got a promise that goes beyond the churches of Asia Minor when he said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, and we are a part of the churches. So things past chapter 1, current state of the churches, chapters 2 and 3, and then now we are launched into the future and that's where chapter 4 begins. Chapters 4 through 22 of Revelation are all yet future. And this is very important because you might have a study Bible that you're looking at that might say everything happening in Revelation 4 to 22 is actually going on right now. And it actually has transpired in history. And I'd say that's just not true. That's not accurate. And we're going to see that when we get into the details of it. And it's also not true in light of the terminology that John specifically uses in chapter 1 and also in chapter 4 where he begins this transition, chapter 4, verse 1, looking into the future, and he says, after these things, I'm going to show you future things. After these things, the things that must take place. So chapters 4 through 22, to give you context, these are all future. This is literally a history of the future. This is how the world is going to end. And this is exciting for the Christian. We know how it ends. And it ends uh, with Christ victoriously, and we as believers get to be a part of that victory. And that's why prophecy and knowing the future, as God has stated, is so encouraging. Because that's what prophecy is supposed to do for the believer. It's supposed to encourage you in the here and now. Because life is hard, isn't it? Full of trials and you get sick maybe of your own sin and weakness sometimes. And you say with Paul, oh wretched man that I am, when will I be set free? The answer is in Romans 8, in the future with the redemption of Christ 
and the universe. And so the story is finished in Revelation chapter 4 through 22. God wasn't going to leave us hanging. He wanted us to know the rest of the story. And, and here it is. So let's go ahead and look at it. By the way, the study of the end times is called eschatology, which comes from a Greek word, eschatos, the last things. Eschatology, the study of the last things. So that's what revelation is. It's a revelation of eschatology, things of the future. And by the way, every human being has their own eschatology, whether they realize it or not. They have their own view of the future. They have their own understanding of how they think the world is going to end. And some like John Lennon, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. Blah, 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 blah. So that was his eschatology in a song. And his whole eschatology was that everything's just going to get better if we all just hold hands and uh, sing kumbaya and light candles and by the way, and, and do drugs. Everything will get better. That was his view of eschatology. So I could go on and on. Everybody has a view of eschatology, how the world is going to end. This one is divinely inspired. So let's go ahead and look at this ongoing view of the future. And so keeping in mind that four and five chapters, four and five go together. When they were written by John, there was no chapter breaks. There were no verse breaks. It's one context. And what it is, is we saw that John was launched into heaven as an apostle with divine privilege to see the future and how it would be revealed. And Jesus Christ himself invited John to come up into heaven. That's Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And so John is in a prophetic trance as he's literally seeing, hearing, and talking about the future as an apostle. So chapters 4 and 5 is John's vision of heaven before God reveals of how everything's going to end in the future. So chapters 4 and 5 go together, and that's John's visit to the heavenly throne room. And we saw that when John was launched up into heaven and he had this privilege to see the, the third heaven where God's literal presence is, the first thing that John saw when he was allowed to see heaven is he saw a throne. That was the first thing he saw. That is central. And then there was one sitting on the throne. And then he saw lights and thunder around. The th that's the glory of God the Father. And then around that he saw a rainbow. And that also is the glory of God the Father. And then around that he saw 24 thrones and one sitting on the throne. So everything is emanating or coming from God the Father as it's portrayed because God the Father and His throne is central and a priority to everything else. And he saw the 24 thrones around. And those are probably glorified believers through the ages and he also saw the seven torches of the Spirit of God, which is the literal presence of the Holy Spirit before God the Father's throne. And he's still looking. And after he sees the seven spirits of God, then he sees these four beings, these living creatures with six wings that are angels, whether cherubim or seraphim, immediately around the throne of God. And they are guarding the holiness of Almighty God. And then all of creation up in heaven upon seeing this unveiled glory and majesty of God, they just bow down and begin to worship He who sits upon the throne. And that's how chapter 4 ended. And then John is given another vision, another scene in the throne room. So let's go ahead and look at what that is. Let's look at chapter 5 now. After John sees all this, there's something else that God revealed to him in the throne room that is a priority. So the focus of, of Revelation 4 is God the Father on the throne. Now he transitions and the focus of chapter 5 is Jesus Christ the lion and the lamb. And you're going to see that in every verse. So let's go ahead and look at 1 through 14. And I've got four points I want to highlight about Jesus Christ as the lion and the lamb, the worthy lamb. And point number one, 
regarding this worthy lamb and, the, and who Jesus is that is revealed. Point number one is the need for the lamb. There is a need for a sacrificial lamb. And that is the perfect Savior. That's point number one. That's verses one through four. So let's go ahead and look at it. Transitioning now to a new focal point. Jesus Himself in glory. And John says, And I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. Keeping in mind that God the Father does not have a body, but this is a picturesque way that the prophecy was revealed to John. Somehow God the Father is portrayed as sitting on the throne, the all-glorious God and Creator of the universe. And God's right hand, that is an Old Testament expression speaking of God's omnipotence. He is the all-powerful One. That is His strong hand. And he's got, and God has His hand up in the air like this. And His palm is raised. We know this from the, the Greek text. God has His hand in the air. Even though God doesn't have a, have a body, this is how it's being communicated. And it's like He has His hand up in the air like this. And I saw the right hand of him who sat upon the throne and a a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who was worthy to open the book and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep and wail greatly because no one was worthy to open the book or to look into it. We know that From the Greek text, it literally says that there was a scroll upon the hand of the one sitting in the throne. So the scroll is laid out on his hand like that. So God the Father is rolling a scroll. By the way, in verse 1 it says book. The the literal word is scroll. They didn't have books back in when John wrote in 95 AD. They had scrolls. And scrolls were parchment that you could write on. And they were either made of papyrus, dried papyrus plant, plant that was rolled out. And you could roll it up when you were done after you... uh wrote something on it, or sometimes they used animal skins as well. And then they would write on them. And so, and then they'd roll them up like this, and then they would seal them with different seals, wax seals or whatever. Uh, this one described here actually has seven seals on the, on this end of the scroll that the Father is holding. And it's, this scroll is going to be opened little by little over the course of seven seals that are undone. We're going to see that. So in your English translation, it shouldn't say book, it should say scroll, because that's what it is. It's the scroll. And you have scrolls all over the Bible. Uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, other places. And so that's what God the Father has. He's got a scroll. By the way, the first phrase there is important where John says in verse 1, and I saw, and I saw. That phrase is repeated dozens of times in the book of Revelation. And I saw, verse 2. And I saw, verse 6. And I saw, literally verse 11. This is the same Greek phrase. It says, I looked or I saw. This is an important reminder that John is an eyewitness to what was revealed. In addition to saying, and I saw, verse 11 says, and I also heard. The unique thing about this is John had prophetic privilege as an apostle to be launched in the third heaven, not just to receive revelation about the future, because we get revelation about the future. We get prophecy. We either read it or and we write it down. John got to experience prophecy about the future. That is amazing and mind-boggling. He got to experience it. With all of his senses, and that's what's going on here. And this is unique. So he has the unique perspective as an apostle. There were only 12 apostles. They laid the foundation of the church. We don't have apostles today. They were given divine revelation in a way that we don't have. They were entrusted with writing down Scripture for us. They gave their life for the church. Ephesians says that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles. And John is a privileged apostle here. Second Corinthians 12.12 12 says that there were unique credentials that qualified one to be an apostle. 
And that is, he could do signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. He also had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. He also had to be alive since the time of John the Baptist's ministry. There aren't apostles today. John was unique, given divine revelation, and he wrote it down for us. And that's why he could say, I saw. I'm an eyewitness. I am a trustworthy source of the future. This is not speculation. This is from God himself. And very important in the middle of verse 5, what did John see? Well, he sees the one on the throne, but attention is zeroed in on this scroll that is sitting on the hand of the Father. So the scroll is very important. The scroll actually is a priority for the rest of the book of Revelation. This scroll. What is this scroll? He saw this scroll. Whatever it is, it's highly important. It's, this scroll is so important, it needs to be opened. And in John's day, in the Roman Empire, and even among the Jews, only special edicts or contracts or deeds were put on scrolls and then sealed with like wax or something similar to that. And when something was sealed, that meant it was reserved for someone's eyes only and only the proper authority was allowed to open it and read it. So this is like spiritually, hermetically sealed on a supernatural plane. That's how vital and important whatever the content of the scroll is. Not just anybody can read it. Someone who is qualified, somebody who has ultimate authority, that is the only person who's allowed to open this scroll because that's what it says in verse 2. Not even a strong angel of God is allowed to open this scroll or has the authority to open it. A strong angel can't do it. Angels can't do it. Satan can't do it. The most perfect human being is not qualified to open this scroll. Well, what is on this scroll, John, that is so important? And what is on this scroll that is so important that it's sealed? Not only sealed, it is intensely sealed because the word in verse 1, sealed up, It's actually the normal word sealed with the preposition added at the beginning, which intensifies the meaning. It is sealed, literally sealed down. Like I said, hermetically sealed. Whatever the contents are, only a qualified person or being is allowed to open it and read it and disclose it. And not only is it sealed once, it is sealed seven times. As I said, all throughout Revelation, seven is the number of completion or fullness. So that's why this scroll is so important. And another distinct thing about the scroll is that it's written on the inside, which was normal. You'd write on the inside, then you'd roll it up and you'd seal it. But it was also written on the outside. It's got writing all over the place, which makes it unique, makes it distinct. It is extensive in what it reveals. It is comprehensive in what it reveals. And we're going to find out that's true. It's comprehensive. And then it tells us everything we need to know from here until the end of the age and even eternity. There is no more that can be added to the revelation of God in terms of the consummation of world history and God's plan. That is the content of this scroll. And actually, as we see the scroll unveiled and revealed, we're going to see that the content that is actually in the scroll becomes the content of the book of Revelation from chapter 6 through 19. So this scroll is all important. It's sealed down, completely sealed, written on the inside and out, which was out of the ordinary. It's probably a contract of some sort because many times that's In those days, since the time of Nero, after the 60s A.D., contracts and deeds and title deeds were done in this format with a scroll that was sealed for only a select few to to read. One historian says this about the scroll and the nature of the scroll. The kind of, that it was a contract in John's day. The kind of contract was known all over the Middle East in ancient times and was used by the Romans from the time of Nero on. The full contract would be written on the inner pages and sealed with seven seals then the content of the contract would be described briefly on the outside. All kinds of transactions were consummated this way through this kind of a scroll, including marriage contracts, 
rental and lease agreements, release of slaves, contract bills and bonds. Support also comes from Hebrew practices. The Hebrew document most closely resembling this scroll was a title deed that was folded and signed requiring at least three witnesses. A portion of the text would be written, then folded over a little and then sealed with a different witness signing each fold where it was sealed. A larger number of witnesses meant that more importance was assigned to this document. So this is probably a contract and it's a title deed that only one person is qualified to look at. So apparently John the Apostle knows something about this scroll because look at his reaction when the strong angel said, who is worthy? No one is worthy. No one in heaven. No one under the earth. No one on the earth. That means no one in creation is worthy to open the scroll. And so John is distressed by that. John the Apostle, because he knows what is at stake in this scroll somehow, probably because he knew Ezekiel chapter 2. He knew the book of Daniel where the same scroll is revealed. The same scroll is given to Ezekiel the prophet and to Daniel. The, the difference is, is that Ezekiel and Daniel were not allowed to unveil its contents. So he knew prophetically from Old Testament Scripture, this is about the consummation of the age. This is about the establishment of the kingdom of the Messiah. This is about all God's promises to the nation of Israel that they would finally and totally and comprehensively be saved and redeemed as a nation on earth, that sin would be conquered, that Satan would be conquered. John knew that. That had to be the content in this scroll. And when he hears that no one is worthy to open it, he reacts emotionally. And look at his reaction in verse 4. I began to weep greatly, literally wail. He's in a heavenly vision and he starts wailing in heaven. Do you know this is the only time in Scripture where someone cries or weeps? As far as we know. There's not supposed to be any weeping in heaven, John. Stop. Knock it off. We're going to see that's exactly what happens. But verse 4, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it and redeem all of humanity. So John thinks, so that is the need for the lamb, the need for a savior, the need for someone worthy to take the title deed from almighty God, the father. And that's point number two. There is someone qualified. There is someone who can meet this unique need. And that's the identity of the lamb. Number two, the identity of the lamb. He's the Old Testament Messiah and all that that entails. Verses 5 and 6 in Revelation chapter 5. You know, some people say, well, I don't read Revelation. Why? Well, it's impractical. It's too hard. It's too difficult. has no relevance. And I'm thinking that is so sad of a view for a Christian. If it weren't, even if it weren't for just verses 5 and 6 of chapter 5 in Revelation, because chapter 5 verses 5 and 6 is one of the richest passages in describing the nature and the work of Jesus Christ. It is absolutely mind boggling. There's too much here to even Address. So we're just going to hit some of the highlights. The identity of this lamb, the identity of this one who is worthy. Who is he? He's the Old Testament Messiah. Look at verse 5. So John is weeping and wailing and moaning and oh no. And then one of the 24 elders said to John. See, that's why I believe the 24 elders were real beings. They're actually talking to John. Hey, hey, John. One of the elders said to John, stop weeping. Quit crying. There's no crying in heaven. Literally, that's what he's saying. It is appropriate to cry sometimes. Crying is a good thing. Crying is a gift from God. And there are times where you shouldn't cry. There's a couple times in the Gospels where Jesus told a couple people, quit, knock it out. Quit crying. I'm about to raise this person from the dead. You should be celebrating. That happened two times when he raised people from the dead. Same thing here. Stop crying, John. See, John, and you shouldn't look down our nose at John. John's just like us, right? Myopic 
narrow-minded, pessimistic, human-level vantage point. We can't see the future. We can't see God's plan. We don't know what God is doing. And so we get depressed. We get distressed because we don't know what God is doing behind the scenes. And we have the wrong perspective. And we come to conclusions too soon. That is so human, isn't it? I think I did that once this week. I don't know about you. That's what John is doing. He just represents us. We'd be up there weeping too. In our myopic lack of faith. Really, that's what's going on here. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, It is impossible to please God without faith. Where are you wavering in your faith? If there's an area in your life where you're wavering in your faith, you're not pleasing God. We walk by faith, not by sight. So John is wavering here. So this uh, elder goes up and says, John, quit crying. Behold, John, stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. That's Jesus. The root of David. Another, he's using these Old Testament titles of the glory of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah. The root of King David. He has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. Hallelujah. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. A lamb standing as if murdered or slaughtered. How is that possible? A slaughtered, murdered lamb standing up, breathing, moving, alive? A lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns. This lamb has seven horns. That's weird. Seven eyes. That's that's weirder which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Boy, I'm going to try if I can. Give the identity of the qualified Messiah who is worthy to take the scroll, the title deed of the earth and the universe from Almighty God, the Creator, and implement its contents in the future. That's Jesus Christ, the Lamb. First, Jesus is called in verse 5, He is called the Lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Flip over to Genesis 49 real quick. That's where this comes from. Isaac, who used to be Jacob the deceiver, then he got saved and became, I'm sorry, Israel. Israel used to be Jacob, and then Jacob got saved and God changed his name to Israel, the one who strives with Yahweh, the one who is on God's team now, no longer the deceiver. And then Israel had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the nation of Israel. And when Israel was about to die. He blessed every one of those 12 sons. Actually, some of them he gave a curse, but they came from God. And he got to Judah in Genesis 49. And by the way, Judah was not uh, pristine and without fault. Judah committed some horrible, egregious sins and immorality. Unbelievable. Yet God blessed Judah out of all of these 12 sons. And here's the promise that Israel, or actually God gave to Judah through Israel as uh, Israel was about to die. And he said to his son Judah, Genesis 49, verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Wow. He's going to be looked up to. Of all the 12 tribes, he will be the one that is looked up to and respected. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. He's going to be a powerful person, Judah and his descendants. They will be powerful. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Through the line of Judah would come the Messiah, the king. Messiah is anointed one. King, that's what it means. And the Messiah would come through the loins of of Judah. That's why when the first king of Israel, Saul, was anointed king, that was a violation of Scripture because it had been revealed he must be a descendant of Judah. And Saul was a descendant of Benjamin. They knew this. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. Judah is a lion. He's associated with the lion. Who is the lion? The lion is the king of the jungle, always has been. Lions are known for being fearless, rapacious, 
violent, predators, courageous. That's the explicit imagery that's trying to be communicated here. That's what the Messiah is going to be like. He's going to be a lion. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. There it is. The scepter of the king, of the Messiah, the one who has the right to rule, will come through the loins of Judah. He's a descendant and a lion from the tribe of Judah. That's exactly what John is talking about in Revelation 5. That's why I said of the 400 plus verses in Revelation, almost 280 of them are direct references to the Old Testament. You've got to know the Old Testament to understand Revelation. And so what he's saying is Jesus is qualified by virtue of the fact that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has the right to reign as king because Jesus came through the lineage of Judah through King David, which is the second part of his qualification. Why is Jesus qualified to take the scroll and to rule as king of kings and lord of lords? Well, because he's a descendant of Judah and he's also the root of David. Many promises that were given to David. David replaced King Saul. And God installed his king, the rightful king, King David, who came from the loins of Judah. And then he gave him a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that one of your descendants will reign as the Messiah, as king. And that's Jesus. So whoever the Messiah was going to be, he had to be a direct descendant of David and of Judah. And in the book of Matthew chapter 1 and also Luke chapter 3, the genealogy of Jesus is traced right through King David. He is the legitimate offshoot and root of King David. Jesus is qualified to be king and reign. And he's going to be the lion. And yet... The reality is we haven't seen Jesus as lion yet. What is a lion? He is ferocious. He is vicious. He is, like I said, a predator. That hasn't happened. We know from the Gospel of Mark, all four Gospels, that Jesus came the first time to this world, not as lion, but as suffering servant, didn't he? He didn't have a place to lay his head. He never really rendered physical judgment on anyone. He just came simply as Savior to seek and, the, and save those who were lost the first time. So he came the first time as suffering servant, but he will come the second time as the voracious lion and judge. And that's what Revelation is all about. The second coming of Jesus Christ to bring judgment in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecy. And we need to have a proper balance and view of who Jesus is. He is the lion, but he's also the meek and lowly lamb. He's the suffering servant and he's also the wrathful judge. They go together and he's perfectly holy in all of his attributes. And so We get a complete, comprehensive, well-balanced picture of who Jesus is and all of his attributes. So he is the lion. Uh, He is the root of David, the qualified king. Get this. He has overcome. Jesus is the overcomer. First John 5 says that believers in Jesus Christ are overcomers. And so does Romans chapter 8. But we aren't overcomers unless Jesus Christ first is the overcomer, right? And scripture is clear. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says that Jesus overcame death and condemned sin through the cross. Amen. Jesus Christ overcame sin on our behalf. Hebrews chapter two says that Jesus, by virtue of his death and resurrection, he overcame Satan and Satan's greatest weapon, which is death. Hebrews chapter two. So Jesus is the overcomer. He overcame sin. He overcame the devil. He overcame death on behalf of sinners. Colossians chapter two, verse 15 says by virtue of his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ overcame and conquered all demonic authorities. Satan, his angels, everything that was evil. The entire evil world has been overcome and conquered by Jesus Christ, the overcomer, who reigns on high. And as a result, if you know Jesus Christ personally, you also are an overcomer because that's what John said in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. He who believes in the Son is an overcomer, just like Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the lion. Jesus is the root of David, the rightful ruler 
uh, king. Jesus is the overcomer. It's amazing. So he's the overcomer and has the right to open the scroll. Verse 6, what else is Jesus? Uh, between the throne, there is a lamb standing. Jesus is the lamb. See, that's in contrast to the lion. Lamb and everything that, that comes right out of Exodus 12 and the Passover. The Passover lamb. The lamb was to be flawless and a male and a baby and innocent. And, they were supposed to, and it was supposed to be perfect. And they were supposed to uh, take that lamb and keep it in their house for four days where it would become intimate and a pet. And then they would slaughter that innocent lamb on behalf of their sins. It was a substitute. Substitute to appease the wrath of a holy God. That's Jesus. His death was a sin, uh, a sacrifice for sin that appeased the holy wrath of God. God who must punish sin. Jesus is the lamb. Interestingly enough, did you know that Jesus, the Messiah, is only called the lamb one time in the Old Testament explicitly? Although every lamb was a picture of Christ, explicitly the Messiah is called lamb one time. That's Isaiah 53, verse 7. In the New Testament, aside from the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the lamb explicitly only four times. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the lamb 31 times. 31 times. That shows you the priority of Jesus as the lamb, as the sacrificial lamb. Nothing, Jesus couldn't be the judge. Jesus couldn't be of the king unless he was first the lamb. It started with his sacrifice. And because he was the flawless lamb and accomplished redemption by death on the cross, resurrection from the dead, reigning exalted on high, he is the rightful king, lord, judge of the universe. But first he had to be lamb before he could be lion. What else is Jesus? He's lamb. He's a lamb standing as if slain. The murdered, slaughtered lamb is standing and alive. That is resurrection. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Jesus is alive. Say that about any other religious leader in the world. You can't. They're all dead. Your Savior, your friend, if you know Him, He is alive. He's the resurrected Jesus. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, and you shall be saved. It's the heart of the Gospel. It's awesome. Jesus, the Lion, the Root of David, the lamb, the resurrected one. It says he has seven horns. What is a horn? A horn speaks of the strength of an animal, right? You don't want to stand in front of a bull because of its horns. You don't want to get gouged. So horns of animals speak of strength all throughout Scripture. Jesus has seven horns. That means he is all-powerful. Jesus is omnipotent. Jesus is equal to the Father in power. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is God in a body. He's all-powerful. What else is He in addition to being all-powerful? It goes on. Not only seven horns, He had seven eyes. Eyes are for seeing. Eyes speak of perception. Eyes speak of knowledge. He has seven. He has the fullness of knowledge. Jesus is omniscient. Jesus knows everything. Jesus is equivalent to the Father in His knowledge. He's omniscient. He's Almighty God. This is what separates the biblical Christian view apart from every other religion in the world because of our view of Jesus. When you're talking to an unbeliever, somebody who's not saved, don't waste your time on all the peripheral secondary issues. Get right to the heart of the matter and start talking about Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? I did that this week with somebody. I didn't know if they were saved. And we talked at length and I just started asking. I focused on Jesus. Let me ask you a whole bunch of questions. I was asking all these questions. Do you believe Jesus is created? Is he eternal? Does he know everything? Is he to be worshiped? Is he deity? Because that's what we're told from scripture. These are all the amazing things. And the last thing about Jesus is his knowledge is in sync with the seven spirits of God. That's the Holy Spirit that go out into all the earth in judgment. In other words, Jesus is inseparable in terms of his existence, his thinking, his relation, his ministry with the Holy Spirit of God. And all throughout these two chapters, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit 
are inextricably related. We worship a triune God. So that is the identity of the worthy one, the Lamb. So let's go on to point number three. Now that Jesus' qualifications have clearly been established, verses 7 to 10, and that's the authority of the Lamb. Jesus has the rightful authority to take the scroll from the Father by virtue of, number one, who He is, and in this section we're going to see by virtue of what He did or accomplished that no one else in the universe could accomplish. The authority of the Lamb. He is equal with the Father. Verse 7 says, So this Lamb, this Lion, this resurrected one, came up to the throne of God, which the four living creatures couldn't do because they had to cover their eyes with their wings. They couldn't approach God's immediate existence without being destroyed as uh, creations and creatures. Jesus is not a created being. Therefore, He can go right up to God the Father. He has direct, direct access to the very throne of God because He is equal to God. So He came and Jesus took... And by the way, this comes right out of the book of Daniel, a parallel description in Daniel chapter 7 of the Messiah going up to the throne of Almighty God. And the Lamb came and He took it. That's powerful. Jesus took the scroll out of the right hand of God the Father. Remember, the right hand of God the Father speaks of His omnipotent power. No one could take it out of the Father's hand unless they had equal power. The Lamb has equal power with the Father because He takes the scroll out of the hand of Almighty God, which tells us of, of Jesus' power. It's equal to the Father. It's amazing. So he takes the scroll out of the hand who sits on the throne. Verse 8, And when he had taken the, the scroll from the Father, the four living creatures are watching this going on. And the 24 elders also are watching this. And they have one response. They fell down. They prostrated themselves. That's where we get the word for worship. To prostrate. To fall face down. That's their reaction. At the glory of Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished. They fell down before the Lamb. They fell down before the Lamb. They fell down to worship Jesus. That is distinctive of Christianity. Many religions say they believe in Jesus. None of those religions say that it is legitimate to pray to or worship Jesus. But the angels and the elders fall down and worship Jesus because He is God. That's the God we worship. Jesus, the Godman, the elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp or really just a stringed instrument and golden bowls. It was the elders actually who had the stringed instruments and the bowls, these wide bowls. The terminology there refers to these bowls that were used in the tabernacle in the temple where the incense would go up as symbolic of prayers to God and intercession as a priest does intercession on behalf of other people. So that's what these bowls are. The harp speaks of worship to God and the bowls speak of prayers to God on behalf of others. And they just drop those and they fall on their face. These are the prayers of the saints, these bowls. That's what they represent. And in their worship, this is what they did, verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book or the scroll and to break its seals. For you, Lord Jesus, were slain and did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Amazing, great truth. So in the previous section, we saw that Jesus was qualified to take the scroll by virtue of who he was. Here we see that Jesus is qualified to take the scroll by virtue of what he did. What did he do? It says he was slain. That means he was willingly crucified. He came, he left heavens, the glories of heaven, came down to the earth that he created, lived the perfect life for 30 years without sin. God took on a human body. He went to the cross purposely. As a matter of fact, he planned it. 
was crucified with the nails. And while he was on the cross for six hours, God the Father was pouring out his wrath upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus was dying and absorbing that wrath on behalf of sinners as a substitute for them. He absorbed the wrath of God so that we could be forgiven of our own sin. That's what it means when it says that Jesus was slain. He died for sinners. He died on behalf of this cursed earth. He died on behalf of this cursed universe even. And he did it successfully. He rose again from the dead. He raised himself from the dead, showing the world that he was king of kings and lord of lords. There are so many meanings and implications to the death of Jesus Christ. Yeah, it means forgiveness of sin, but it means more than that. And one of the things that it means that's explicitly stated here in verse 9, that Jesus' death accomplished redemption. Or the terminology is, when Jesus died, he purchased for God. The terminology means we were slaves. Before we got saved, we were slaves. And we were slaves to our own sin. We were slaves to Satan and probably didn't even realize it. And we were slaves to the world. And we were also a slave to the curse of this earth. And one of the things that Jesus accomplished when he saved us is he purchased us and bought us out of slavery. And so no longer do we belong to Satan. No longer is sin supposed to be our master. Jesus now is our master. And it says that he purchased. God was the one that purchased. God owns us. If you're a Christian, God owns you. God owns you. You belong to him. And he paid the eternal precious price and he's not going to relinquish you. No one can snatch you from the Father's hand. I don't care what you've done. If you're a true born-again believer, you're eternally secure in the grasp of Almighty God the Father who owns you because He purchased you with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's the security of your salvation. That's awesome, isn't it? So Jesus is worthy and has the authority by virtue of what He has done. The work of the cross. The work of redemption. And as a result, look at the response uh, again as they continue to just worship Jesus for His work on the cross. You've made your people to be a kingdom of priests. That means He's given us direct access to God. We don't have to go through Him. We go directly to God. That's also what Jesus accomplished. And someday we will reign with Him upon the earth in the future. That's the millennial king. That's the authority of the Lamb. And then finally, let's go ahead and look at point number four. And that's how everybody reacts there that's in heaven to all that is going on and all that transpired and all the verbal conversation is... Uh, the meaning of Jesus' death is articulated once again for all of heaven to hear. And this time, there's new members added to the scene up in heaven. In chapter 4, Jesus was introduced to this scene up in heaven around the throne. And now there's new members that are highlighted. And that's in verse 11. Point number 4 is the glory of the Lamb. The glory of the Lamb. And that's that Jesus is worthy of worship. And that's 11 through 14. So John says, and I looked again. So this is the fourth time. I looked, I looked. He keeps getting these mini visions. I looked and I heard the voice of many angels. Well, how many angels, John? Well, these were angels around the throne. And there were, in addition to the four living creatures, and in addition to the 24 elders, and the numbers, get this, of these angels was myriads of myriads. Myriads is like 10,000 in Greek. 10,000 times 10,000. That's just a, a way to say too many to count. Innumerable. That's how many angels he saw. The number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands. And well, what did they do when they saw that Jesus was the resurrected Savior of the world? Verse 12 says they were saying with a loud voice, crying out, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Notice that verse 13 too. They say the same thing to, to God the Father, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They worship Jesus just as much and equally as they worship the Father. 
And that's what we need to do. We worship the triune God of the universe. And they sing out, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus is God. He's the Savior. Verse 13, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and under the sea and all things in them I heard saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So that's this rising crescendo of this pantheon of praise to the triune God focused on God the Father and Jesus Christ as they all just fall to their faces. Every creature in heaven absolutely amazing and all that they can Conclude with his verse 14 and the four living creatures who lead all of this worship just said they kept saying, amen, amen. So it is. So it is. They're just caught up in the rapture of worship of God, the father and Jesus, the lamb and the elders follow suit and they fall down on their face once again and they worship the father and the lamb just caught up in worship. This is amazing. What a scene, what a glorious, glorious lamb. Well, some might ask, well, how do you apply this? What is the practical application of all this? What is the practical application of all this? Well, that's a good question. Because Revelation 1.3, that's John's point. I'm writing this book so that you will read it, you will understand it, and you will apply it. There has to be practical application to everything we read in Revelation. And some people look at this and they're just like, there's no practical application or relevance here. There is so much practical application, I couldn't even write it all down. So here's some suggestions of how to apply what we just saw in Revelation chapter 5. Point number one, practical application, believe it. Isn't that practical? Don't doubt it. Believe it. This is real. This is legit. This is the purest source of a revelation about the future, about all of history, about reality, about God, about Jesus, what he's like, who we are, who sinners are. You must believe it and not doubt. Because your faith will be continually and forever, evermore under assault. If it's not your own weakness and flesh and your own indwelling sin, then it will be uh, unbelievers that you commiserate with or interact with throughout the week or somebody else's weak faith or somebody else's tragedy in their life or Satan and all of his minions behind the scenes supernaturally attacking and trying to undermine your faith and get you to doubt the Bible. So practical application number one, believe it. Believe what? Well, believe this is the true story about the future. Believe that God is in control of all things. Sometimes that's hard to believe as a Christian, isn't it? God is in control of all things. That's one thing that 4 and 5 teach. He's on the throne. He's in the middle. He is in control of your finances. He is in control of your family life. He is in control of your personal life. He is in control of meeting all of your needs. He's in control of the trials and struggles you're having. You name it, God is in control. And like I said, as humans, that's hard to believe sometimes, isn't it? But that's what Revelation 4 and 5, that's practical. Believe it. God is in control. Also believe that Jesus is the king of the universe. And he will rectify and make right all things someday. You can count on it. He's going to straighten it all out. Believe it. This is all going to happen just the way John tells us. Another practical application is keep reflecting on what Christ did for you. That's probably one of the most important verses. Chapter 5, verse 9. He was slain. He purchased you from sin. And now you're an overcomer. And keep reflecting on that. And that's what the angels were doing and the 24 elders. And they were just caught up in worship and thanksgiving to this great Savior. So keep reflecting on Christ, who He is and what He did for you. That's practical application, isn't it? Throughout the week, get your eyes off yourself, get your eyes off your problem, get the eyes off of your need, your weak faith. You start thinking about Christ, what He did for you, and it's going to raise your eyes from looking down to up and praising Him in glory. That's practical application. Worshiping God and Jesus, that is practical application of this chapter, isn't it? 
Practical application. Actually, you know what? That is the greatest practical application we can ever take away from anything that we read in Scripture and learn about God. Our response should always be and forevermore knowing that He is in total control. He is the gracious, merciful Savior of His own beloved children by virtue of His death and resurrection that it should just prompt us, draw us to worship. And we have that great privilege as believers to do that. So let's go ahead. If you could pray with me and we'll go to the Father in prayer with hearts full of thanksgiving for what God has accomplished through His Savior, Jesus Christ, and then appropriately close in worship corporately through song. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do thank You for our time together. We thank You for the Lord's Day. Father, I thank You for every person that You brought to us today, really by divine appointment. May Your hand of blessing, uh, protection, be on those who couldn't be with us today, who are regularly here. Thank you that we could look to your word together at uh, your revelation. The future that's already written down for us to, to give us hope, to help us persevere just one more day and also to prompt us to give you thanksgiving and praise, to worship you. God, what a great privilege. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for willingly being slain, willingly being murdered and absorb the wrath of Almighty God on behalf of sinners. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came the first time a suffering servant to rescue sinners from their sin and that we can be a part of that. We've been adopted into the family of God. And God, we also thank you for the future. You're going to complete the redemption process that you began, not just by saving our souls, but also saving our bodies and saving this cursed earth. What a glorious day that will be. Father, uh, fill our minds with this glory in the future of how you told us it's going to be throughout the week to encourage our hearts and to give you the glory as a result. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.